our lesson, like I said, we're going to be in Esther. So in a moment, if you want to turn to chapter 1, um, we'll, I'm going to start off with a, with a little bit of a joke. I don't know who the guy was that uh, had ended up going up into heaven and he was getting a tour and St. Peter was showing him around and, and there was clocks everywhere. And he said, well, what is all these clocks? It says, well, that's everybody's clock and it represents like sin and the life. And he said, that's Billy Graham's clock over there. Well, it, it didn't even really move, you know. But some of the clocks was moving a little bit and some a little bit more. And the guy looked around. He said, well, where's my clock? And he said, well, your clock's special. It's in the office. We use it for a ceiling fan. <laughs> so I was wondering, maybe that's my clock too. I hope not. Lord, I ask for forgiveness of everything. And, and so if you're there with me, let's start out with a moment of prayer. I'll, I'll let you say your prayer to prepare your heart and your mind for the reception of the word of God. And then, then I will pray with us for the Lord's spirit to be among us. And then uh, we'll get into our lesson today. Father, we pray in the quiet of this moment that your Holy Spirit would be among us, Father. And we know that he dwells within us and we pray that we haven't quenched him or grieved him, but that he's, he's within us and that we are alive through him spiritually. And we know that it is through him that we are able to learn and to perceive the things that are in your word. And so, Father, as we have sung songs and as we are now praying to you and as we worship you in all of these ways we we want to worship you now by opening your word and we pray that your word which is more important than any food that we take in for life we don't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from your mouth father and so as we take in this portion of nourishment that we're going to have for today and that it's going to meditate and to drive our hearts and our minds and our thoughts for this next week until we come back again on Wednesday and then on Sunday and then the word that we study on our own. We pray, Father, that the word will be clear. Pray that you will allow us to understand it for how important it is in our life. We pray that it will help us in life so that we will have a better life and be joyful and not sad about things that happen that we trust in you and your providence in everything father and father may we understand it but also through our study and through what we see today most of all may it glorify you as god as holy god and as your word that was spoken to us and may we worship you in spirit and in truth. And may you be glorified and glad with our worship to you, Father. May it be pleasing to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Oh, Esther chapter 1, if you want to get there. We're going to talk about Haman's heart today. And last week, I have to apologize. I was, I was running on, on the Holy Ghost, I think. It wasn't me. Um, I was barely here. People's told me that I look a lot better today than I did last week. Well, I, I feel a lot better. Thank you. Well, as, as much as you can put lipstick on a pig, I guess. But, but thank you for the prayers. And thank you for everything for our family and for everyone else. Because I've talked with several folks that, that have had this, this stuff for the last few weeks. And it's really, it's really been wicked. And um, uh, so thank you for that. And uh, I, I got out of here quick, and, and uh, I slept all day, basically, and then found out I had a stomach virus on Monday night, and they gave me a shot, and, and, uh, and it was pretty rough. But in the delirium of all of that, I mean, you, you get that, that shot for making you not nausea, but she said go straight home because it's going to make you tired and you're going to sleep. In kind of that little delirium, little dream world, the, the thought of Esther and Ruth and doing a lesson from these books was running through my mind. And I have to tell you that I've, I've always felt kind of a special kindred with the Word of God because the two books of the Bible that was named after faithful women... Esther and Ruth was the names of my grandparents. My grandma on my mom's side was Ruth, and my grandmother on my dad's side was Esther. And I've just always felt this sense of calling with that. So today I want to share with you part one. I thought I could do it in one, but I can't. You know me, I usually don't get through a few verses. So we're going to get through five chapters today, and we're going to get through the other five next week. So if you're there, uh, turn to Esther uh, chapter 1. It's Haman's heart. That's the, that's the direction we're going to go with, with this. There's many ways that we could do it. God's providence, God's foreknowledge and guidance for life. There's a lot of ways that we could take it. Esther and all of the things that she was just so faithful in and Mordecai. But I want to go from Haman's heart. And, and as I've known a lot of you for a while now that we've been here. And, and there's some uh, and new folks as well. That I can look around and tell that none of you have this problem in your heart with anything like anger. Um, Envy, jealousy, problems with people at work or school or in your family. I, I can really tell that, that this crowd doesn't need to be told about those things. But what I guess I should do is give us some preventative medicine in case we will be able to recognize it if it tries to creep in, okay? Let's put it that way. You know, back in 1995... There was a movie that came out. Um, I remember it was pretty creepy. I watched it back then and I haven't seen it since. And I don't know that I would want to. Because it's kind of a creepy movie. It was called Seven. And it was about this 
um, thing that was going on in a community where they were taking the, the supposedly seven deadly sins and, and the police would arrive on the scene and this one would say sloth and this one would say, uh, you know, hatred or envy and all of the different ones. They're listed, if you Google it, as wrath, pride, sloth, lust, envy, gluttony, and greed. Well, God has his seven also. And we've talked about them a few times, but I thought that I'd put them up here for us today, again, so that we, would, we could see them for ourselves. There are six things that the Lord hates. You know, there's seven that are an abomination unto him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations or plans, feet that make haste to run to do evil, a false witness that is bearing and breathing out lies, and a one that sows discord among brethren. I want you to look and listen carefully at seven things that it doesn't say that I hate or anyone else. These are seven things that God hates, that God has a problem with in our lives. Haughty eyes or pride or thinking of oneself above someone else and kind of looking down. Your haughty position looking down and thinking that you are better and that they are lesser a lying tongue. Wow, did you realize that was one of the seven? I would have picked some other things, wouldn't you? Ooh, that one gets close. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked imagination or plans. Feet that are quick to go and to do. That love mischief and stirring up things with others. A false witness that speaks lies to get someone else into trouble or into a lesser position, maybe at work. And a person who sows discord is a troublemaker among brethren, always trying to separate into factions, groups of people. All of these things, you know what they have in common? They start right here. They start right here. And then they fester and they boil over and they begin coming out into outward expressions. The thoughts, when they're left to simmer within themselves and in our fleshly nature, they are soon fanned into other flames of rage and action. And that's why Proverbs 23 and verse 7 is one of my marching orders and I bring up often whenever we're together, but I also bring it up often in my own life as well. That says this, as you think in your heart, so you are. Well, that, that's close to home. Not as you do, not as people perceive, but as you think on the inside, in the privacy of your own mind. As you think and reflect upon things, that's what you really are. And make no mistake, the Lord is able to know every idle thought and every idle word that we have. The word of God, it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, is living, it's alive. 
It's powerful. And you know how spiritually sharp it is? It says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing of the sunder of the soul and the spirit and the bones and the joints and the marrow. But also look at the last part of the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Not only the thoughts, but the intents that goes behind the thoughts that we do. Meditate on that for a moment. It's sharp enough to lay us bare. The next verse goes on to say that there's nothing hidden. That everything is open, exposed, and laid bare by the word of God all the way to the intentions of our hearts. And so that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5 says, to cast down those imaginations that's within you. And every high thing or thought that would exalt itself against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Captivity means to lock something up. Our thoughts, we have to place a lock and a guard around it and to lock our thoughts into captivity for Jesus. To think on things that are good and pure and holy and just. Because if we don't, these things will pervade and they will come in and they will ruin a person. They will expand And our thoughts and these thoughts go against the knowledge of God. And that's when the things that are in God's word for how we live and how we act and what we do. When we stand up against those things and think, I don't want to do that. That's what it says there. You begin to think yourself above that. And it says that against your imaginations that tries to exalt against the knowledge of what's in God's word. We have to get rid of that. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to look at a case in point. We're going to look at an example from the word of God, and his name is Haman. Haman is going to be our example of what can go wrong if we don't listen to these points But we decide to go ahead and let the thoughts of our heart and our mind and those intentions and those imaginations. What happens when we let go and and let them have presentation within our life? So if you're there with me now and we're covering so much that I hope that you've opened up your Bible or if you grabbed one that's around you in front because there's so many scriptures I didn't put them up here today. I, I was hoping you'd be able to follow along and. And we'll mark as we go through the chapters. But chapter 1 finds the king of Persia. It opens up with him and his name is Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus has been having a whale of a party. 180 days, 6 months, he's been throwing a party and he's been opening it up. He's... He reigns over 127 provinces of the world. His kingdom goes from Africa and Libya all the way across to the east to India and Pakistan. It runs all the way through there. 127 provinces of the world is under his rule. And the people that he has as princes in those provinces have been coming in for six months. 
And he's been showing them the riches and the power of the Persian Empire and showing everything off that he has. And at the end of that 180 days, he threw a seven-day, a week-long party of the best of the king's wine and food, and they drank out of golden goblets. And it explains that, man, he had tapestries that was out of this world and decorations. The, the marble that was out there and the colors and the alabaster and the floors... Their couches were covered with gold and silver that they were on. The food and the wine. And it says on the seventh day when his heart was merry with wine. That he called for the queen Vashti to be regaled in her crown. And to be brought and presented forth and paraded around. And all of her beauty and glamour before these men who had been drinking for a week and he asked for his chamberlains and it names the seven ones there and I want you to remember one of them's name there Bigtha that it says it'll come up big here in a moment but Bigtha was one of the seven that goes and goes to the queen and says the king wants you to parade and I've I've heard some commentators say that he wanted her it, it said just in her crown and nothing else I've heard others said it's in her crown and in her re royal regalia. But whatever reason it was, Vashti said, no, I don't want to go. I am not going to go and parade myself in front of those men. They came back to the king and the king was shocked. He has now lost face in front of all of these noblemen that he is over. You can't allow that to happen. And it's, not, it's only going to be not good for him, but also all of these men, when they go back home, when they heard what happened. So he gathers the wise men together and says, what are we going to do about this situation? And they gather together and they said, well, we can't let it go. So we got to do something big. So we're going to take and remove Vashti from her office. She will no longer be queen. We're going to take away everything that she has. She will be a vagrant. She will be homeless. She will not have anything. She is done and cast out. And we're going to let someone else have her place and all of her stuff. Well, that seemed proper and good to the king. So now they put forth an edict throughout all of the provinces that they're over, all 127, with a notice that said, all of the young and the beautiful virgins of the land, we want you to come and gather before the king, and he is going to, to pick a new queen from among the best of the land. And so with that, the edict goes out, and we get ready now for chapter 2. And we've met the first main character in King Ahasuerus. Chapter 2, we meet the next two. It is Mordecai and Hadassah. That's Esther to us. You see, Hadassah was her Hebrew name, her Jewish name. And that means a myrtle, a plant. And Esther means star. And that was her Persian name. And you remember like Daniel... And his three friends, they were renamed. The Persians didn't want you to be known as your Hebrew names. They wanted you to be assimilated into their culture and their customs. And they changed your name to Persians' names like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abilagot. So, it's now Esther. 
instead of Hadassah. And so we meet Mordecai and Hadassah. And it says that after this uh, festival and all that, down in verse 7 of chapter 2, it says that Mordecai's uncle's daughter is who Esther is. Mordecai is the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who was a Benjamite. So since it was his uncle's daughter, we would call her a cousin. So he's older than his cousin, and her parents died while she was young. And so he had adopted Esther as his own. And it says he loved her as his own daughter, and he took care of her. And Esther now is swept in to this regalia of being a part of those who the king is going to try to choose to be the next king. And then it says, with all of the stuff that that we're told, that she was a beautiful, a wonderful young lady. He had raised her well in the fear and the admonition of the Lord like we do our children. And it says that the favor of God came upon her as well and that those that ran the, the pools of women that she rose to the top and the guy really liked her and took care of her and gave her the proper advice. They spent a long time in all of their, their beauty preparation for being brought before the king and we'll save that for some other uh, lesson. But Mordecai went every day past the court of the women so that he could see how Esther was doing. And one of the things that he had told her was not to tell that she was a Hebrew. She had not let anyone know of what her origin was so that no one did that, uh, would know that she was not Persian but was of a Jew. And so it says that after they spent a year It took a little more than a year of their beauty treatments with essential oils and bathing and the different things that she was presented to the king. And it says by the providence of God that Esther sought favor in the king's eyes and he loved her and beheld her beauty above all of the others who had been presented and he said, this is my queen. And he presented her with the royal crown. And now Esther was the queen over Persia in Vastai's stead. And there's a little tidbit of trivia that's going to play big, especially in next week's lesson at the end of chapter 2. And this tidbit of trivia is that evidently Mordecai may even be employed by the king's uh, people there to be at the gate and watch. And that's why he can be there every day and check on Esther. But it says that as he was at the king's gate. That he overheard two of the king's chamberlains with an assassination plot. Bigtha and Teresh. I told you Bigtha was going to come up big in a minute. So whether he was upset what had happened back in that deal with Vashti. We don't know. It doesn't say. All we know is now he is angry at the king and he and another one who are in the chambers and have close access to King Ahasuerus are plotting an assassination attempt upon his life. Mordecai, by the providence of God, hears what's going on and relays it to Esther. Esther puts an an official certificate in his name up to the king and to his guards. They do an investigation, 
it comes out and turns out to be true. And so they are taken care of, and it's written, it says, at the bottom of chapter 2 there, that this deed was certified and written in the chronicles of the kings of the Medes and the Persians. And that's going to come up big also next week. So now we get to chapter 3. Ooh, chapter 3. Now we meet the fourth character in chapter 3. And this is Haman. And it says in verse 1 that after the assassination attempt, after these things, the king promoted He moved way up through all of the seats of the ranks. He moved a man named Haman all the way up to the next seat and right above his, above all of the other princes that were with him. Promotion. Let me ask you, how do you handle good things? How do you handle promotion? If you've had a big promotion at work or you've had a big promotion in something else where you were recognized in a special way, how do you handle that? Do you remain humble at heart or do you let it begin to go to your head and to your heart? Can you handle it? Boy, this is, this is moving up the ladder fast. Can Haman be able to handle being promoted to second Under the king and queen. So now. It says in verse 2. All the king's servants that were in the king's gate. Bowed down and made reverence to Haman. And it was supposed to be like as the king has directed for his main officials. And then we get one of those big butts of the Bible. And it says. But Mordecai would not bow nor pay reverence to him. And even the other servants at the gate with him that were there would ask him and say, Mordecai, why do you not bow down to the uh, king's uh, number two men in Haman when he comes through? The Bible doesn't give us an answer as to why it does. I'm sure that he didn't want to reverence this man, as it said. He didn't want to make that reverence just as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't bow either. So, he doesn't bow down. These servants now, they go to Haman and let him know that he's not bowing down when he walks through. And they tell him something else because they, they've known Mordecai now for a while since he's been at the gate with them for quite a while, over a year at least. So, now they tell him, and he's a Jew. So, Haman... Haman, this man that it says here in chapter 1, who's the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Boy, now that's a mouthful, isn't it? That he advanced, he was walking, and now he's noticing because they've told him that this man named Mordecai, who is a Jew, is not wanting to bow down to him. And now that it's brought to his attention, what happens when promotion and that What did God's word call it? The haughty eyes, the proud look. What happens when the haughtiness starts looking down upon someone, but the one that you think's below you doesn't bow down and worship you, doesn't pay you the respect that you're supposed to have. And you've been promoted at work, but people aren't respecting what's going on in your life. And how are you going to handle that? 
Do you let it go? Do you go and talk to him privately and figure out why that's happening? Do you go to the person? No. It says that when he saw in verse 5 that Mordecai wouldn't bow or reverence in him, he didn't do any of those things. It says he was filled with wrath. He now has expanded from haughtiness of his promotion to hatred, wrath. You see how these things, I'm going to give you a little tidbit. Our, our mental attitude, those seven things that God hates, they don't travel alone. They cluster up. They attract each other. They, they multiply like rabbits. I mean, one leads to another, which leads to another. That's why God says, check your thoughts early and bring them into captivity. Because when we don't, they multiply. Look at how this is multiplying now. Sin number two. He's filled with wrath internally as he thinks in his heart. So he is. Pride and stature is now turning into wrath. And it burns inside of Haman's heart. Pride and anger are common bedfellows. And then Haman didn't only want to retaliate with scorn against Mordecai. Look what verse 6 says. He is so angry now that he's found out that Mordecai is a Jew. His anger is kindled by racism that he doesn't want to stop there. He wants to devise a wicked imagination. So here we go with plots and imaginations. Sin number three, how that they expand on not only doing something to Mordecai, but also to all of the Jews that are in the provinces across 127 places. Not just him, I want to do away with all of the Jews. I can't stand them, I hate them. He's just a representation of them and I want to get rid of them all. Now, I want you to realize what's moving through Haman's heart here. In just six short verses... He's went from arrogance and pride to the sin of wrath to the sin of devising wicked plans to now he's getting ready to lie and bear false witness. Those plans include now a lying tongue to go and tell the king that you don't need these Jews in your province and let's get rid of all of them. And that's why God hates these sins so much. That's why he doesn't pick out the ones that we thought were so bad. These are because they bring forth the actions of all of the other sins that are the outward ones, the expressionable ones that we end up doing that we think's bad. But they all start from what's in here. And now I'm going to share another little tidbit of trivia with you if you want to. Circle these verses in your Bible because I don't know that it's often taught anywhere on this is what all else is running through our little uh, conversation in the word of God. I've already given you the two clues. If you're like me, though, when you read through the Bible and when we go through it, the things that we think are trivial, 
that are small things like the begats and whose son is who and all of that. We just kind of go through those things, don't, don't we, real quick, because that's not important. I want to get to the meat of it. Well, let's go back just a little bit. I want you to take a close look at chapter 2, verse 5. There's a certain Jew named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. You know why God goes through all of that and places it right here? Because it's important to the story. He doesn't, there's not one word in the word of God that's not important and there for a reason. If you take all that back, do you know who else was a son of Kish in the Bible? King Saul, the first king, the first human king, because before that, God was the king of Israel. The first human king, when they wanted a human king like everyone else, it was Saul, the son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. Do you remember what Saul was instructed to do by Samuel the prophet? There was an evil group of people called the Amalekites that did all kinds of gross, rebellious things against God. And he says, as you go, I need you to do away with these people or they will be a thorn in the side of your flesh. They are so evil, I have to get rid of them. Take all of them, their animals, everything. Samuel goes, they get rid of almost all of them. But he saves the animals and he saves a king. And Samuel comes and says, What's the bleeding that I hear in my ears? And who is this that stands before me? And Saul, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, when it said the woman and the woman said the serpent, Saul says, The people that you've put me over wanted to keep all of these things. And Samuel said, You were responsible and in charge. What did I tell you? You are not to keep any of them. Do you remember what the king's name was? Agag. And Samuel, in 1 Samuel 15, down around verse 31 through 33, goes and hacks him up with his own sword. King Agag. Now, look back up at chapter 3, verse 1. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the what? The Agathite. King Agag's descendant. So what we have here is something that's been brewing within inside of people from the time of King Saul. That's why the word of God says that Mordecai was the great grandson of Kish. And Esther was his uncle's daughter. So that would have been also a brother of Saul's. That would, because Saul was his uncle. It was a brother of his great grandpa. Doesn't this get good? We've got a descendant of Agag who knows his family history and knows that his people were slain by the God of the Jews. And now 
I am promoted in the kingdom to number two, and I find out that there's a man that won't bow down and give me reverence, and instead of overlooking at it or going and talking to that man, I find out that he is also a Jew and that he's the son through the lineage of Kish, the same as the ones that killed my great, great, Grandpa the king, where I should have been the king of the Amalekites in my own kingdom instead of underneath these Medes and Persians anyway. Do you see how the word of God doesn't leave anything out? Oh, you can't make this stuff up, folks. So now what he does, he says, I want to get rid of anyone. This arrogance, this anger, this devising plots is going down now to picking out the people that's under me, my sorcerers and wise men, and I am going to have them, it says in there, to cast pur or lots, your Bible says. So they cast lots, and it says they go month by month, and then day by day, because he says, I want to present to the king that you say would be the proper fitting, the best day to overthrow the power of the Jews and their God with our God. What is the proper day to list as the decree to destroy them? And so they cast them out, and it comes down to be the... 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. And we get this statement in, in um, the third chapter. It, he goes now with his plot to Ahasuerus that he's made up now, this plan. And he says, King, now here's the lie that he tells him. There is a people in all of your provinces, all across them, that doesn't keep your commandments. They don't do what you tell them to do. And they are not profitable for you to have them within your regions. So I want to put a decree signed by the king that we do away with all of them on this day. On the twelfth, the 13th day of the 12th month. Verse 10 makes this solemn declaration there of chapter 3. The king took the ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and then what's your Bible say? The enemy of the Jews runs deep, doesn't it? Hatred runs deep. Sins of the heart are hard to get rid of. Now you see all of this. And the king's ring, they signed the declarations to send to all 127 provinces of the king that upon this date we're going to kill all of the Jews, we want all of everybody mobilized for it. And also out of the treasury will be 10,000 talents of silver to those who can show how many that they have killed. Now I'm going to have to speed this thing up or we'll be here till sundown. I'm glad that we sped the time up. That gets us an hour less till sundown. Chapter 4, chapter 4. Mordecai, when he saw the king's post now... He rent his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes and all of the people down in the square that he told that were Jews and they all went in prayer. And they were all crying with their loud and bitter voice and Esther's chamberlains came and told her and she wanted to figure out what was going on so she sent one of her servants down and 
And Mordecai begins talking to him and explaining what the decree is now of the king that Haman has put out and what peril all of our families are in all across the, the land of Persia. And he says, go back and charge Esther that she needs to go to the king so that she can make supplication for herself and her people before him. And then Esther sent back a message to the king. And I can understand, she's a young lady. And she's been groomed now on the protocol of the king. And she sends back to Mordecai and says, But Mordecai, the king has a policy. You don't go to that chamber without him calling you. You see what they had? The king had like his throne room up here. And he would sit upon the throne like Pam does when she plays, you know. And he would sit here, and let's say that this is his interior throne room, but out there in the foyer and then in the parking lot is the second courtyard of the king. And his throne is facing the courtyard like this. And if anyone, he's got guards right there, guards with swords and axes to behead people right now. And he... If he looks and sees someone coming into that court that he didn't ask to come there and bid to come see him, they, if he does not extend the royal scepter out to to wave them in, they are murdered immediately. And she sends word now back to Mordecai and says, The king, if I go to approach him, he hasn't called me in over 30 days. If I go to approach him and he hasn't called me, I can be beheaded right then if he doesn't find favor in me and call me on in to touch the scepter. Well, when the messenger comes back with that, he says, tell her that's unacceptable. That is unacceptable. Just because you sit in the palace of the king, don't think that you're going to be exempt from about what's to happen. Because when that edict comes down, there's enough people around here that we've been close to that knows that you're a Jew. That you're a Jewess. And they will tell the king and say, the law is the law and your queen must go as well. So don't think because you sit up there In your palace that you shall escape the trouble. And I'm going to tell you something else. If you don't go to the king, help will come from our God from another source. God will protect his people. And you mark that down because we're his people, okay? And I'm not mad at anybody today. I'm not mad this week, okay? Last week I told you being sick and everything, I felt like this anger inside. And I told someone this morning, it wasn't anger at anything or anybody except for sin and our fallen world and the problems that it brings, like sickness and disease and the stuff that we go through. So that's what makes me angry. But I'm not mad at anybody today. I feel good. So He says, because you're there, don't think you'll escape. Help's going to come from somewhere else. But you, God will deal with you and your family for not standing in the gap. For who knows, Esther, that you were put in the place that you are for such a time as this. This isn't on my notes, Miss T, but I'm going to pause right here for a moment because I just feel moved. There are times in your life 
that you're in positions and places, good or bad, for such a time as this. And it's moving to recognize that and do what's right. There are times that you're going to have to stand up even though it's uncomfortable, even though it doesn't feel good, even though you want to say, I'm, I'm hidden and I'm not a part of that. There are times when such a time as this, God has put you in a place and a position for you to help to deal with an issue in a situation of life. And as you look back on it, you'll see that just like what we've been seeing here, it's all part of God's providence and plan of getting you to where you was so that you could be able to handle his situation for him. So now she submits to this and she says, Okay, Mordecai, I, I accept. That's a wonderful young woman. She's probably only about 22, 23, 24 years old. I, I submit, ask all of the Jews in Shushan here at the palace that you're with to pray for three days. I will take all of my chamberlains and we will pray for three days. And after that, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. And so they all began to go into prayer. And that's how we're ending chapter 4. And I want you to see, though, this evil, how far now it's permeated into even dividing a nation. We need to recognize that. It's dividing a nation against itself and causing the call for murder of innocent blood. What was that other last thing that God hates? The shedding of innocent blood. May this country never see this kind of division again. That we have a shedding of innocent blood because they don't like that you're Christians. Okay, now, chapter 5. Esther, here's where we start getting really good. Esther puts on, after these three days, her, her royal regalia. And she goes out into that courtyard and the king, he's sitting up there on his throne and he looks out and he sees Esther walk into the courtyard. He knows the rules. And I'm sure as their eyes met that those seconds seemed like an eternity for both of them. I bet she was scared. I bet inside she was shaken. But her calling for doing what's right for God and his people was enough to place her there under the gaze of the king. And it says that the king looked out and he saw his queen and she found favor in his sight. We're the people of God. You are highly favored. Don't go through this life thinking you're not favored. If God's calling you to go into the fire, he's going to see you through the fire. He's going to be the fourth man in the fire like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. She found favor because God cast favor upon his heart. And she found favor and he extended the scepter and she walked through the courtyard and come up and touched the king's scepter. And he said, Oh my queen, what is your request? I will... I will give what you want up to the half of the kingdom. 
And she says, King, if I've found favor in your sight, my request is that I would like to throw a banquet this evening for you and for your number two man, Haman. And the king says, Okay, Esther. And he could tell something else was on her mind. So that night, as they come and they gather together at the banquet, they, they're sitting there at the time of wine. And the king asks her again, and he says, Oh, queen, what was your petition? What is it that you want to ask for? And evidently, she didn't feel the time was right. Evidently, the spirit and the, the premonition of God that was working through her life said, Not yet. She couldn't bring herself to tell. And it was because of God's provision. We're going to find that out next week. But she said, King, I can't bring it up tonight. But if, if you will allow me the grace to throw another banquet tomorrow night for the two of you, then I will share with you what my petition is. And the king again saw favor and granted that request and said, we will meet with you tomorrow night. Well, now, on the other hand, we got Haman. He's in high cotton, man. He's walking in high cotton. He comes out of there. He walks past the king's gate. I'll come back to that in a minute. He walks past the king's gate. He goes home. And you know what he does? He begins telling his wife and all of the servants and the people that's gathered together. He says, Look at the man that I am. I am second with the king and even the queen has asked for only me to be at the banquet with her and him. And she has requested that I be with them tomorrow as well. Two days in a row. Man, I'm on top of the world, aren't I? But I want you to see how deep mental attitude sins go. Look down at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 5. He should be happy and ecstatic for everything that is being blessed in his life. But look what it says. Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am going again, invited by her along with the king. But then there's these fateful words in verse 13. Yet all this avails me nothing. Promotion, being a banquet's number two in the land. It avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. You see, I told you he had to walk past the gate to go home. And guess who was there that wouldn't bow down again to him? I got the queen asking me to be with her and the king. And this frog out there won't even bow down to me. This Jew. When mental attitude sins have a hold of us deep like that, folks, you don't have the capacity to enjoy life. You don't have the ability and the capacity to enjoy and see the things that God is bringing to you and blessing you because you are allowing those thoughts to control who and what you are. That's why... It's for our benefit. 
that we get rid of those so that we can see, so that we can have the capacity to enjoy life and not be dogged and burdened down by these sins. All of the things that I have avails me nothing as long as this guy sits at the gate. So he starts asking for advice for the people that he's hanging with. (laughs) That's a pun. So the people that he's hanging with, he says, what should I do to get rid of this guy at the gate? And they say, build a gallows, 50 cubits high, and let's hang him from it so that you don't have to see him at that gate no more. And so the saying, it says, pleased Haman. And they begin immediately building that gallows to hang Mordecai upon. And as our worship team returns, <laughs> same bat time, same bat channel next week, we're going to continue with part number two of this story. What's going to happen with Mordecai and this gallows? What about Queen Esther and the court? What's going to happen to the Jews across the province? Is Mordecai, is his plan going to succeed? Or is it going to be foiled like the joker and the penguin? I don't know. Come back next week and we'll find out. But for this week, what I would ask you to do is to go back and read these five chapters. And hopefully you grabbed some of those other Berean chapters which contain the verses on taking your thoughts captive and and the seven things that God hates. And... This week, meditate throughout the week on what this really means to me and my family and my life. Because it's, it, what happens in life through these things doesn't just impact you. It impacts the people around you. It impacts your families and the ones you love. See the warning signs that was all throughout Haman's journey here in these five chapters, and learn to recognize them in my heart and my life so that I can quickly see where it's going and go in God in prayer and asking for strength, asking for forgiveness, if need to, going to the person that I also need to tell I'm sorry for what I'd done whenever I was acting that way. And if we will do that and learn to recognize it and stop it quick before they fester and bring in all of these other bedfellows that they like to hang around with, if we will do that, I guarantee you, you will have capacity for life, capacity to enjoy things, and God will richly bless your life instead of having a miserable life. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is the bread of life for us. And if we are like a tree that's planted by that river of water, that we don't, like Haman, build up these things and then walk in the, in the way with the sinful and the seed of the sinful and the scorners, and, and we sit with all of this and listen to wrong advice. But if we look to your word... If we 
desire and meditate upon your word day and night and learn what to look for, then our life, you have promised, will be like a tree planted by a river of water that will bring forth fruit in its season and its leaves will grow and not wither. Father, may we learn to recognize these things in our life and in the lives of others that we love and that we know and that we can help encourage also. This isn't just for ourselves, but there are people here who aren't learning this. So help us to not only first apply it to ourselves, but then help us in kindness, in meekness, gentleness, and love, apply it to those that we love and that we come in contact with. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.